Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. We've talked before in The Observatory about how the White House has used design to get its message out around all sorts of events, the State of the Union, get out the vote. Now, a professor at Cal Arts called Lisa K. Solomon, who teaches design strategy, says that Hillary needs a designer-in-chief. Michael, what do you think about this? I, th- I think it's a really interesting idea. I think there's a difference between campaigning and governing. I mean, she, she has a really good and capable graphic design staff. She has, like all like the rest of the candidates, she has a logo, and in this case, one that I was involved with. I think that those things are actually just tools, and I think the article points to something a little bit deeper. I mean, to me, I would one-up the proposition and say that perhaps what the U.S. government needs is a cabinet-level design post with design uh, defined extremely broadly, like a secretary of design, you know, and it's not just about making sure the lawn signs all have the right typeface. It's about... Although that would be nice. But I think I think we're getting to that. Since uh, 08, we sort of have a, a path to success as far as typographic coordination of lawn signs and other objects like that. But you make a good point, which is which is that it's not about necessarily a hierarchy. This comment, which, which got some play online, reminded me of the book that came out a year ago called The Rise of the DEO, or the Design Executive Officer. And we we published an excerpt from it, which we'll put a link to on our site. Very interesting uh, argument about the idea that business acumen and creative ability have uh, characteristically and historically been siloed, and that the idea of getting past brainstorming and design thinking to something where you see the design problem as a combination of what they call imagination and metrics is is maybe something uh, that, that we're all ready for, which gets back to this Lisa K. Solomon point. But your suggestion, I think, might be a more realistic one. Really? <laughs> Go on. Which is to elevate design not as an either-or proposition, but as a sort of equal function yeah, yeah. to the disciplines of strategy and... Well, there already is a sizable staff at the White House and distributed throughout a lot of federal agencies of people doing digital strategy, digital communications. A lot of this grew up in the aftermath of the disastrous uh, attempt to launch healthcare.gov. And, uh, you know, uh, in the wake of that, uh, they recruited tons and tons of really capable people who know how to do um, coding, user interface, all that stuff on a professional level. And I think really the question is, is there a big picture about how government communicates with citizens and the way that citizens make their needs and desires uh, known to government that could be enhanced by design. It's really about how the experience of being a citizen actually could be shaped by the forces of what we consider design and design defined very broadly. Often design in concert with this kind of business has to do with PR. It has to do with sort of managing the story. Uh, But when you talk about strategy and the digital strategy and getting out in front of what the image is, I think that the design in concert with politics has become a much more kind of multifaceted proposition than it might once have been. Um, Yeah, and it's some, you know, by the way, this isn't entirely new. I, a few years ago, went to a conference about the late great designer George Nelson, who uh, was a American uh, mid-century designer associated most with product design in the uh, same generation as uh, Charles and Ray Eames and Eero Saarinen. Uh, But one thing Nelson actually did was uh, he had 
uh, big view of design, did architecture as well as product design, and actually did graphic design as well as product design. And um, at one point, they got an assignment from the federal government, and this would have been probably in the 70s, I'm thinking, to completely redesign the uh, way that people signed up for Social Security benefits. And a young designer named Chris Pullman, who since went on to become a fairly legendary teacher and practitioner and AIGA medalist, uh, had that as his assignment. I saw Chris give a presentation about the work, and it had this level of analytical thinking and executional detail that was staggering and prescient, actually, in terms of what a mass user experience could be at the level of a whole nation and at the level of a cohort of people reaching retirement age where they qualified for Social Security, as I recall. And amazingly, it was all done with the medium being print. And it was about the margins and tabs you would set on typewriters and how many pieces of paper would come in an envelope with a stamp on them. You know, it was simultaneously, you know, almost Neanderthal in its primitivism, but it was also like visionary, far-seeing, and to my mind, a little bit unmatched in terms of that heyday in the mid-70s of design improvement happening at the federal level. All the elements are in place right now for a broad initiative to drop in and start to unify all these different strands that are happening with great digital thinkers being here, with every candidate understanding, quote unquote, the power of branding and the power of communication, whether they wield it intuitively or in a more Machiavellian sort of way. How do you actually turn that to the public good? Yves Bahar, the um, industrial designer who runs Fuse Project, I'm going to quote him. He says, in the future, I see a role in every executive team for a designer, someone whose role it is to ensure that every element of the business is designed well and designed holistically. Koi Vin, who has a wonderful website called Subtraction that, that I'm, I think you follow too, Michael. Everyone follows it, yeah. He has a, uh, a really good piece um, that he published recently called Advice for Founders Looking to Hire Their First Designer. And he says, you know, that people are reluctant to hire designers into key leadership positions because they think that the design tasks are all the same and, and that developing the design and the brand, and that these are sort of, you know, rhetorical or, or kind of formulaic things, but that even on a small team, it can make an enormous difference to the company's culture and DNA to get a designer in and have them come aboard right away, which is exactly what Yves Bahar is saying. So in a sense, it's, it's that leadership comes from thinking about design as a function of everything, recruiting, business strategy, partnerships, markets, capital, everything. Um, and that many founders of startups see the wisdom in hiring leaders for the technology roles, but when it comes to design, they have a different approach. And they tend to hire somebody who's more junior and bring them in and have them kind of drink the Kool-Aid and so forth. And so, and he's, he's proposing the opposite, that you, know, you need a design leader on your team from the outset, that uh, design has to exist at a sort of systemic level, that it's not topical, it's not secondary or tertiary, but that it's a fundamental part of the DNA of any business. The big challenge with design and government, period, is just that government is so complicated. I think there's almost no private sector parallel to the complexity and, in many cases, incoherence of any government operation. If you just talk about healthcare.gov as an example, there is a great book by um, Stephen Brill where he talks about the history of healthcare in America and gives a real fly in the wall account of what went into launching this expanded access to healthcare that happened under the Obama administration. And the amount of 
bureaucratic kind of negotiating, infighting. It was so Byzantine and convoluted. It like there's there's like almost like no place for someone practicing as a designer to get a sense of purchase or just even kind of figure out where where you would actually stand in this maelstrom of craziness that that led up to that launch where you could actually have any influence at all and if you're talking about someone kind of riding herd over the entire u.s government it's quite a challenge indeed if you think you would be the uh, uh the design consigliere to the president kind of uh with an with a office with a uh nice i would stamp. actually like to be i would like to be design consigliere to the president and in fact i want that on my business card dream I, I on think, I think that's that's what I want for Christmas, Michael. Dream on. Yeah, I, I was trying to think of like who sort of had that role of the spinmeister in chief to previous presidents. You know, a lot of these people just jockey for position and influence. It'd be amazing if someone calling themselves a designer defined in nearly any way could even kind of get themselves into that line of people jostling. Never mind at the head of the line or even in the front, you know, the front half. You'd have to figure out, as you would in any organization, you know, who does the in-house designer, quote-unquote, report to? Do they report to the head of marketing? Do they report to the head of uh, public affairs, of governmental relations, of, uh, or do they... Uh, do they have a, you know, are they in the quote-unquote C-suite, you know? Uh, there's a wonderful series that aired on American television in the early 2000s uh, called The West Wing. And in The West Wing, the president's chief of staff is a guy called Leo McGarry. And Leo McGarry is sitting with the president, and it's the end of the season, and they're about to gear up for uh, a re-election. And there's this great moment when Leo McGarry says to the president, uh, here's our campaign strategy for going into the re-election campaign. And he writes on a napkin, let Bartlett be Bartlett. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And so it's it's like it's like we're just going to let you do your thing. We're going to let you be honest. And there's going to be no spin doctor here. You're, it's just it's on a napkin. It's in pen. Here it is. And they framed it. And it became this kind of beacon of strategy in the subsequent season. And it was somebody writing something on a napkin. Now, this may not feel like graphic design per se, but it kind of was. Right? It kind of was a visual catalyst that changed the strategy for the forthcoming election cycle. Well, there was a documentary called The War Room that you may recall about Bill Clinton's campaign for the presidency in 1992. And James Carville had a similar napkin sketch where he just put down three points. I remember two of them. One was change versus more of the same. That was like one big issue they were presenting as they went up against the first George Bush. Um, and uh, there was another one, but then the one that everyone remembers uh, is uh, it's the economy, stupid. That's like nailed to the door in their campaign headquarters. Any great enterprise uh, has to be animated by big, simple themes. And in fact, one of the issues that I think Lisa K. Solomon is kind of like raising is what happens when the electorate senses that there isn't any big, clear theme that actually uh, helps get the message across, you know. Michael and I want to share some news with you. Beginning July 1st, we are going to be joining the Yale School of Management as lecturers in design. Uh, The School of Management understands, like many business schools do, the value of design in conjunction with many other aspects of training leaders for tomorrow. 
But we're not doing your usual design thinking. This is really, we're really there to kind of understand and help build a culture of design at Yale that connects to its history, that connects to the university, uh, which is rich in the humanities and other disciplines, and that really understands the role design can play in concert with business at a global level. The one thing that I have noticed is that the students who are all candidates for MBAs are really, really interested in design, are really hungry about it, actually know more than you'd expect about it, and are really pushing to have this happen. And I think that should be really reassuring to anyone who is like listening to the first half of this podcast. In fact, you know, if you're talking about how do we get design to have an influence at the national civic level? How do we get design to have an influence in more parts of daily life? That's only going to happen not just because of the sheer force of will of people who call themselves designers, but because there's a broader understanding of the utility of design and the necessity for it, no matter what it is you're doing. And I find that the days when you'd be looking at some blank face or even vaguely suspicious or cynical um, client type across a table as you sort of like talked about design and uh, you could tell that your listener sort of thought you were talking about some kind of bullshit voodoo or something. I think those days are going away. I think that um, more and more you're going to find that you're getting pushed by clients and collaborators to think more and think harder about design. So what we're hoping to do up at Yale is create some uh, new models, and there are lots of there are models out there already for how this can be done, but for some new interesting models about how design and specifically the world of business, but I think the implication is the world, can work together and be better integrated to kind of create a uh, better place for all of us. So, Michael, let's talk about some things we've seen recently that we like. Well, everyone I know has been talking about this special issue of the New York Times magazine. We're going through this uh, huge bait of mega skyscrapers, particularly up in Midtown, and a lot of these are condominium towers for hyper-rich people along Central Park South. Uh, Almost all of them have ambitious and uh, worthy architects, and it's really transforming the skyline. And in honor of that story, the New York Times did a uh, amazing special issue where they did the unpre- what I believe is the unprecedented thing of turning the magazine sideways. So basically, every spread is inverted into a single portrait format page. So um, uh, they designed a custom typeface, which I just adore, which is uh, both extremely tall and extremely condensed, and some might say extremely illegible, but it just is so seductive and gorgeous. People got that on the weekend, and I swear every graphic designer I knew was talking about it when I showed up to work the next day. And this magazine is as collectible as the Dickens and as gorgeous a piece of print publication design as I've seen in years. So kudos to the New York Times and the magazine and its brilliant design team. And how about you, Jessica? What have you seen? What are you excited about? 
Well, I, I've been picking up on a, th a thematic link uh, that is extremely visual, not because it's beautiful, delicious graphic design the, in the way that you just described the Times Magazine, but because it gets at this larger kind of cultural view of the degree to which we can be seduced by things and express our reaction to that seduction visually. Uh, one is a new book by a very young woman named Emma Klein called The Girl, set during the end of the 1960s, a very violent, sort of turbulent cultural moment. But the book is really about falling under the spell of a cult. And what it made me think of is a documentary that came out also very recently. Uh, it was premiered at Sundance last season, uh, and it's called Holy Hell. Now, this is a film, interestingly, made by a guy who was part of a cult. He got out of film school in the mid-80s, and he was in West Hollywood, and he joined this disenfranchised group of men and women. They called themselves Buddha Field, Buddha as in the Buddha Field. Uh, he was there for 20 years, and his way of kind of making sense of this extremely rarefied, bizarre culture was to film it. And, and at the conclusion of these 20 years, things sort of started to fall apart. He made this film, and the film is now being widely heralded as this really kind of unusual thing. And I just thought it was it was sort of interesting that the film came out, the book came out. I was reading about both of them. Both of them hinted at the degree to which these things manifest extremely visually. How hard it is to get outside of something that you're so much a part of. And I think I think you know we're all of us privy to that. Where you know there's something cultish about politics. There's something cultish about our adherence to and devotion to and reliance upon our devices. You know, you're comparing a fiction book and a nonfiction film, and there's something both real and unreal about those kind of worlds. Because you know, any cult is a is a is a group of people who have all mutually agreed on a common belief system, which may or may not have any roots at all in reality you know it just can be based on you know uh everyone ascending to heaven on a flying saucer on december 31st or that you know one of the you know one of the one member of the cult is the embodiment of the messiah or all sorts of crazy things you know so um it sort of is people in real life kind of giving themselves up to the drama of fiction to a certain degree and there's a um talking about the collision of the fictional world and the real world there's a great essay by Andrew Morantz in The New Yorker about the HBO show Silicon Valley and the way that the research is done to make that show so true to life. The essay is really, really um, uh, fascinating and startling to a certain degree when you um, see that uh, they literally have hundreds of people that they go to to kind of like check out the fidelity of every element in this heavily satirical show. If you haven't seen it, it is um, now in its third season, and it's tracking the fortunes and misfortunes of a small band of computer programmers, Silicon Valley types, who are starting up a new business and um, are vacillating wildly between moments of triumph and inevitable moments of gruesome and hilarious embarrassment. Uh, Jessica, I think you follow it. There's a part where a product designer makes an appearance in uh, uh, season three to talk about the design of a box that they've been pressed against their will into helping create. And they sort of like nail ex what I imagine exactly is the attitude of hardcore product guys as they're confronted by the esoterica of designers who come in with design thinking and ask them what sort of animal they want their 
box to be. Oh, with, with his, and he's playing music in the background and he's wearing black. And at some point later in the episode, the, the, the CEO has gone AWOL. And so people are playing lacrosse in the studio and they cut to the designer and he's making art with post-it notes. I mean, it is like, it's such a brilliant parody of like just pitch perfect parody. And, and you're right. It's that, that, that article in the New Yorker was really great because it talked about how scrutinized they are. That in fact, if you were to actually freeze frame and look at those screens, they actually have real code. People started yeah. actually deconstructing the code. Right, and right. so you've got this thing that, you know, in the old days would have had canned laughter, right? No canned laughter, but, you know, one scene funnier than the next. And and the idea that it's it's real life tech culture that's behind it. I don't know if you caught this, Michael, but uh, Terry Gross on Fresh Air had actually the two showrunners on, on her show. Um, uh, Alec Berg and 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 Mike Judge, who's the creator of, of uh, Silicon Valley, and they and then they had Thomas Middleditch, who plays Richard, the sort of central <laughs> character. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's just such a wonderful thing to listen to them talk about and play up. And what she does on her show, which I love, is that she will set up a scene and play the scene, and then have the people there deconstruct the scene. But she set it up kind of as a viewer, knowing that she's going to get the inside scoop. And so you get this kind of trifecta of the actual scene, the precursor to it, which, which she sets up, and then the showrunner's going through it, and really just um, the, the complexity. They they talk on this episode of Fresh Air about a scene in which the CEO, who's really completely revealing his true colors, is there to tell the main character that, in fact, the future is not him, it's not the product, it's the product is not what he's making, it's the, it's the stockholders, and the yeah, whole the, scene takes place. the product is the stock price, yeah. Is, yeah. Is, is, is the stock price, and is the shareholders, and the whole scene takes place in this very sort of elite barn where he's watching his stallion you know and he's basically left the premises of the building where they're actually doing their own work trying to get this product to market so that the shareholders recoup their investment and in fact he's standing there saying would you please excuse me i'm here to watch my one hundred and fifty thousand dollar investment in two seconds of of you know bull semen happen i mean it's done it's just so uncanny but i'm sure they probably they probably had a you know a high-end stallion impregnating team of people they're advising them <laughs> that same ceo played by uh Stephen tobolowski the action jack he has a thing on his wall oh god so the, brilliant the, the, two, the, 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 the square of synchronous the, the, the double triangles the of, of right and, and, he, and he keeps reminding everyone that <laughs> it's being taught in business schools it's like this stupid diagram of like two interlocking triangles you know in a way it's exactly the flip side of the brilliant napkin sketch around which every Everyone can rally because he's done this, um, this kind of <laughs> right. completely inscrutable. <laughs> and the and thing moronic, that goes through the middle uh, of the square uh, is a line of compromise. But of course, it's at an angle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so brilliant. It's so brilliant. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's really great, and um, you know, it reminds us that maybe every effective thing in the world is done by someone, uh, by done by people who have sort of all agreed to share, at least temporarily, a kind of cult-like kind of set of beliefs that what they're doing is important. I mean, if you look at Silicon Valley and you compare it to the girls or, uh, you know, any writing about cults, it's sort of there's a private language. There's a, uh, a sense in the rightness of their cause. There's a disdain for people who don't understand the language or don't share the belief in the cause. And, and you know, thus it all, you know, that's sort of what makes the show both so funny and evidently so true to life. 
and um, uh, and you know the true to lifeness kind of goes on to the design of every logo for every company. There's a it um, just so brilliantly skewers this notion of you know wanting to make the world a better place, but really they want to just basically kill it financially. I mean, everybody you know it, they're so good at at sort of narrowing the lens on the the. The, the lies and the discrepancies and it's funny but it's also it's funny because it's so true I know even I know. even even the video intro where the cartoon drones flying over cartoon Silicon Valley but you see all the logos of Facebook and Uber and then there's the fake logos of the fake companies they keep modifying that opening sequence to reflect the rising and falling fortunes of, of different each of companies. The companies you know so <sighs> um, so I think once it was just Uber but now Lyft kind of is like bumping into Uber it's like very it's like really funny and so, somewhere online is a breakdown of how that opening sequence that I think Gordon Yu designed, beautiful piece of animation with a funny piece of music over it, has kind of like changed as uh, as the years go by. And there's also, of course, um, uh, as happens nowadays, different fake companies on the show have websites online that you can go to, including, if I recall, there was actually, um, you know, one of the enterprises had a new logo, then the designer of the logo talked about how he came to design the logo. It's like, it's, it's just really, really funny, and the density of it is what makes it so delightful, and uh, Berg and Judge and this vast team they've put together pouring, you know, amazing resources into what really is a, a kooky 30-minute comedy that goes up once a week, and it probably has as many people contributing to it as a very well-funded startup anywhere in its uh, namesake hometown. The thing that makes this different is it's so specific to a culture that is driven by money, populated by really young people, uh, happening in this kind of strangely dystopian world of two-story buildings in Silicon Valley. You could imagine this show could go on for years and years and just adapt and flow based on, you know, hoverboards or drones or AI. With each new technological thing comes a whole new set of storylines. And maybe Pied Piper isn't always the, the main narrative. But in a sense, I think what, what actually is interesting and also a little, a little unsettling about this, it's dangerously close to reality. And of course, if you've been to Facebook and Google and all of these places, they are places that, you know, the sun is always shining, people are on skateboards, there's always a lot of food, nobody ever leaves. That culture may change in five years, and it's possible that this show could continue to endure with all these changes and map itself to whatever the new physicality is of those environments. This is really a classic workplace comedy. You know, in a way, this is like Mary Tyler Moore, you know, where Mary worked in, she was an, uh, an assistant producer in a television news show. On that show, just like almost all kind of classic laugh track comedies, in, if it was a workplace comedy, what was always amazing wasn't so much the lack of fidelity, but how little time anyone actually spent working. You know, like on the Mary Tyler Moore show, <laughs> like there'd be like whole seasons where almost, you know, the Ted Knight character was actually a an anchorman it would just barely come up. The fact that the Marie Slaughter character was a writer. It's just they all sort of sat at desks and sort of had quips, but it was really their romantic adventures, all this other stuff that kind of would drive the plot sometimes. Uh, not always. I, I mean, I this is my favorite sitcom of all times, probably Mary Tyler Moore. But um, uh, what's amazing about Silicon Valley is that they are... Um, there's a couple times where some things that are sort of not quite directly related to their obsessive commitment to, you know, launching this product and building this company intrude, but it's almost 95% about what they're doing. And that, I think, just, you know, once you commit to that, you've got no choice but to, like, start filling in the blanks with uh, – 
um, impeccably but, but, researched uh, detail. You are right, Michael. But make no mistake. Years ago, I, wrote, I worked in television, so I can say that you know, in those days, we either you had a show that was character driven, or you had a show that was narrative driven. Mm -hmm. This, as you say, something's always happening on the show. But my God, yeah, these yeah. characters! I, if there's a spinoff for Guilfoyle, <laughs> I am first in line to watch it. I this guy and and his rivalry with the Indian guy and the racist, the oh, racist um, humor. I like they own it. They are not afraid to say these things. It is so brilliantly done and executed. And so you end up, you know, as with most shows, you watch it because you care about Mary Tyler Moore and Lou Grant. You care about these characters and not in the way that you, you know, want to see them not suffer, but you kind of do want to see them suffer. In fact. So it's, but it's just like, that's the thing about humor, right? That's the thing about, it's its own engine. It's its own catalyst in the delivery of these stories. Yeah, as, as a final note, I think the show is a testimony to what it takes to create an accurate satire. If you're trying to do a fake, funny version of something, the funniness relies entirely on the fidelity to the real model, right? So if you're, you know, if you're trying to design a fake newspaper and it's supposed to be funny for whatever reason, you know, making it look like a real newspaper makes it funnier. If it looks like a crazy funny newspaper, it sort of seems like it's digging its uh, elbow into your ribs as it's delivering the joke. There's a great passage in a, uh, a book that Tony Hendra wrote years ago about the history of boomer humor in America, where he's talking about the design of the National Lampoon, a, uh, a publication that he was one of the editors of. And the original issues of the National Lampoon were all uh, designed by a kind of a post hippie outfit so everything sort of seemed a little bit kind of like the underground press and sort of self-consciously irreverent and the guys who were writing it just felt that the jokes just somehow weren't landing so they brought in a brilliant art director named Michael Gross who I think was like working at someplace like Ladies Home Journal or something he was a real Pratt educated graphic designer brilliant designer and um, he just came in and said look the reason you're doing this wrong you know you're designing you're making a proposal for you know American postage stamps that reflect Ameri that reflect disasters in American history, and it's a really funny idea. So you're designing funny postage stamps to reflect the funny idea, and it cancels it out. What you need to do is design postage stamps that look exactly like postage stamps, and the only thing that's off about them is that they're about disasters as opposed to triumphs. He had this perfect pitch where he could do a perfect government form. He could design, obviously, perfect postage stamps. He could design almost anything and kind of at this incredibly high level of verisimilitude. And most famously, he designed probably the greatest thing the National Lampoon ever did, which is this uh, early 60s high school yearbook parody where every page of it has exactly the kind of layout that you would recognize immediately from a you know post-war era high school yearbook, the typesetting, the kerning, the quality of the photography, every aspect of it is absolutely perfect. And that's what makes it funny. And I think the same thing is happening here with Silicon Valley. They make it fu it's It's funny because it's true, as they say. And I think that trueness, that uh, fidelity is what really makes the satire land so sharply. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed on today's show, including design and government and Hillary Clinton's campaign. If you like what you heard today, please go to iTunes now and rate us or leave a review. You can also tell your friends about the observatory on your social media of choice. Keep up with us between episodes on Facebook and on Twitter. I'm at Jessica Helfand and Michael is at Michael Beirut. That's I before E in Beirut. 
You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash theobservatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into Design Matters with Debbie Millman, our other fantastic podcast. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Jessica. Thanks, Michael. Talk to you soon. Thank you.